0: This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AAAA. Hello, and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan.
1: Good to be here, Darren.
0: On today's episode, we begin with Prime Minister Morrison's recent foreign policy speech, Turn then to the results of the latest Lowy poll of the Australian public's foreign policy attitudes and finish with some brief coverage of the G20. So let's get started. On the 26th of June, Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a foreign policy speech entitled Where We Live at Bloomberg's offices in Sydney, with AsiaLink also sponsoring the event. The timing of the speech was important, as Morrison would subsequently fly to Osaka in Japan for the G20 Leaders Summit that weekend. And indeed, he explicitly mentioned the fact that he was leaving for Osaka in his very first sentence. Alan, can I ask two preliminary questions before we get to the substance of the speech? First, can you situate the importance of this speech in the timing or stage of Morrison's trajectory as Prime Minister? We have discussed a speech he gave in Queensland last year, but as all Australians know it's probably simplest to interpret everything he did since replacing Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister through the lens of running for re-election. And he's done that, he won. So how should we understand what he's trying to do here? What are his objectives?
1: Well, I think that's right, Darren. I, I don't know how confident the PM was of his election victory, but the fact that he called it a miracle suggests that there, at least, there was at least some element of uh, a surprise in it. So the result of that is that he suddenly found himself in a position of governing in his own right and with his own legitimacy. And given that the coalition uh, didn't go into the election campaign with a particularly uh, detailed forward agenda, it was important that he set out at an early stage what a Morrison government foreign policy would be like he made it immediately clear after the election and we talked about this last time that foreign policy would be important to him and uh, we he had those visits to Solomon Islands Singapore and the D-Day commemorations but the G20 is more important than any of those because it's the international institution which brings Australia closest to the central debates of global mm. power mm. And it was always going to be a forum for the most important issue on the international agenda and the most important issue uh, in Australia's own priorities, which is, of course, the economic relationship between China and the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was important, I thought, that the Prime Minister sets out for the Australian public uh, what our national views are on that, and I think he did it uh, very well. It was very impressive, beginning with an important and interesting shift from some dimensions of conventional Australian policy. I think he sort of squibbed it at the end, uh, but we can come back to that later on.
0: Okay. Well, second preliminary question, and this is about process, um, because I don't think I've asked this of you before. How much input would various government departments have for this kind of speech? How much of it would come directly from the PM's own office, You know, whether it's his speechwriters and his staffers, or the PM himself,
1: and how much from bureaucrats? Well, look, it it varies enormously between, in my experience anyway, between different uh, prime ministers and officers and different staffers. Some, you know, famous leaders like Churchill wrote many of their own words themselves. But that's now very rare for obvious uh, reasons. Our leaders simply don't have the time to do that. So as a general rule of thumb, a decision will be taken to accept an invitation to make a speech Mm -hmm. or, uh, and I suspect this was one such case, uh, the office will look out for a place to deliver a speech on a uh, theme they've already agreed. Uh, Normally, the department will be asked to provide some detailed notes or even uh, sometimes a rough draft. And the PM himself would, in a case like this, I think, sit down with his senior advisers and speechwriters, and um, provide a broad overview, very general, of the direction that he wanted to go in. There's no point in preparing a speech and then finding that it differs from the speaker's intent at the uh, at the end. That can uh, that could be. Uh, very stressful, <laughs> as I can attest to <laughs> staffers. Uh While I was working in uh, Paul Keating's office as, his international advisor, I would draft all the foreign policy speeches myself because I like writing mm. and uh, and I didn't trust anyone else to do it. <laughs> uh, but I'd always hand them over in the end to his uh, chief speech writer, who was the extraordinary Don Watson, and they'd come back to me with a, maybe only a handful of stylistic changes, but all of them would remind me of why Don was a much greater writer than I'll ever be. Mm-hmm. In other offices, more of the actual drafting is done by the speech writing staff and then edited by the specialist advisors, so it's the other way round. Mm. Uh, it's then usually sent back to the department mm. for a final check to ensure that there are no unexploded landmines <laughs> uh, uh, littered, uh, littered that have been inserted during the process. Indeed. But once the speech is delivered, it's owned entirely by the deliverer. And you could see in the Q&A after the speech, uh, the extent to which Morrison himself is comfortable with the arguments and uh, prepared to elaborate on the theme. So I thought it was very much a personal speech by the Prime Minister. Okay,
0: well, let's turn to the substance of the speech itself. And similar to the questions I posed to you, Alan, about Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Lung's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue in our last episode, I'd like to use some quotes from this speech as the basis to ask for your assessment. So to begin first up, quote, "'While continuing to work with other partners in the region, we will also deal directly with our great and powerful friends.'" Of course, Alan, this is notable for the plural on the word friends, and after discussing the United States... Morrison then turned to China. So it now seems we
1: have two great and powerful friends. Alan, is this an important change? Uh, Well, let me put it this way, Darren. I I don't think it's important, but it is revealing. Uh, The words, our great and powerful friends are, um, you know, this is one of the best-known phrases in Australian foreign policy. Mm. It was used by Robert Menzies in the 1950s and 60s, and he was describing Britain and the United States. His purpose at the time was to broaden out our traditional idea of a security relationship with Britain to include the United States. In one of his speeches, he asks, Why powerful friends? Does anyone suppose we could, in our own strength, defend ourselves against a major aggressor? So the idea was deeply tied up with security. Mm. Uh, Sir Robert would probably be rolling in his grave to think of it being applied as as it is here to China. Mm. Uh, The structure of the speech here is that the the PM has been working through our relations with other partners in uh, Asia... And he then adds, we'll also deal directly, as you said, with our great and powerful friends in the plural. And the section on the United States then moves directly into one dealing with China. I'm pretty sure that the speechwriters didn't mean anything much beyond the fact that we count both the United States and China as friends and that they are each great and powerful. But whether it was deliberate or not, it's quite a striking recognition of the power realities Australia now faces. Next, earlier in the speech, Morrison said, quote, This is why Australia
0: has always and will continue to welcome China's economic growth. However, the ground has now shifted. It is now evident that the United States believes that the rules-based trading system in its current form is not capable of dealing with China's economic structure and policy practices. Many of these concerns are legitimate. And then after listing some concerns, including forced technology transfer, IP theft, and industrial subsidies, the Prime Minister concludes, quote, our current trading system seems incapable of acknowledging, let alone resolving these issues. The rules-based system is in need of urgent repair if it is to adequately respond to these new challenges, including the rise of large emerging economies, changing patterns of trade, and new technologies. Our prosperity and that of our Indo-Pacific partners depend strongly on the maintenance of an open global economy and a rules-based trading system. End quote. Now, Alan, in asking for your reaction, I note that the term rules-based was only used three times in the speech twice in the section that I just read out, and once just a few lines earlier when he was highlighting how China's economic rise was based upon an engagement with the rules-based system. What do you think of that?
1: I wouldn't uh, read too much into the, into the word count. Uh, the speech is a very strong defence of the rules-based international order. He says our prosperity and that of our Indo-Pacific partners depends strongly on the maintenance of an open global economy, and a rules-based trading system. And it's a call to both the US and China to continue to support it. Uh, The speech also understands, uh, however, that the rules-based order is never fixed. It's not a permanent feature of the international system. It always and necessarily responds to New technologies, uh, new developments, changes in the balance of power. So Morrison is saying here that both China and the United States need to adjust appropriately.
0: Okay. well, nevertheless, in contrast to three mentions of the term rules-based, the term sovereign or sovereignty appear six times, including twice in the following excerpt. And I quote, The post-war world order has achieved something truly extraordinary. The United States deserves great credit for this achievement. Central to these institutions has been a respect for the individual sovereign state, no matter how large or small, and the ambition that each may be able to engage and participate with the security afforded by a common set of rules. That means they get a fair go, free of coercion. Like any nation, the United States is not perfect, but it has form. In being able to look beyond its own horizon to see a bigger picture the united states has demonstrated an understanding that the responsibilities of great powers are exercised in their restraint freely subjecting itself to higher order rules their accommodation of other interests and their benevolence such power supports the independence and sovereignty of other nation states and affords protection beyond its own interests in the knowledge that this is necessary to maintain the peace and stability that ultimately underpins their own prosperity, end quote. Alan, as an IR scholar, I have not often seen the argument that the US-led system was a boon for sovereignty. Indeed, I've always sort of viewed the requirements of a rules-based order to be in direct tension with sovereignty, since to follow rules and agree to sign up to rules requires some degree of sacrifice of one's freedom of action. So how do you assess this claim?
1: Yeah, look, I, I thought this was the most conceptually interesting and even um, innovative part of the speech. I hadn't seen this sort of framing of the rules-based order as a necessary defence of sovereignty in a speech by an Australian politician before. I think the PM tends to over the role of the United States in establishing Uh, post-war prosperity. I understand why he's doing Mm. it. He wants to hold them to their own uh, best purposes. And I don't deny that the uh, US structuring of the post-World War II international order was hugely beneficial Mm. to all of us, uh, Australia in particular. But if I were the Chinese, I think I'd be slightly irritated to be told that China's emergence as a significant power was, and I'm quoting him, made possible by the active and strategic engagement of the United States. I might have thought that I had something to do with it myself. (laughs) Indeed. In the Q&A after the question, the Prime Minister elaborated on some of this thinking by saying that uh, everyone in China doesn't need to be on Visa and MasterCard and everyone in the United States doesn't need to be on WePay in order for them to do business with each other. They can have different systems, and that's fine so long as we have an overarching global trading system and an overarching global international system through which all these systems can uh, talk to each other. So it was an interesting reframing of globalisation and the rules-based order for for a more nationalist, Trumpist uh, world, saying you can have your sovereignty but the rules-based order needs to sit on top of all mm. of this. What, do, what did you make of the speech, Darren?
0: I thought uh, the following line was especially interesting. Uh, quote, We should not just sit back and passively await our fate in the wake of a major power contest. This underestimates and gives up on the power of human, state and multilateral agency. End quote. You and I have discussed... Australia's agency quite often on this podcast Alan, as recently as last episode when I asked you whether or not you thought Australia had any power to shape events in Hong Kong. The theorist in me cannot escape the hypothesis that as a major power contest ramps up and becomes more intense, that the agency of smaller countries is inevitably reduced. There is less we can do in this hypothesis because our two strongest capabilities as a middle power or a top 20 power, I would say one, navigating within a rules-based order, and two, the use of persuasion, both become more impotent, maybe, amid the hardening positions and increasingly zero-sum thinking of the major powers. Alan, how did you read Morrison's insistency that
1: we in Australia do have agency? Well, uh, as you know, I'm all for agency. And I think this was one of the strong parts of the uh, speech, an explicit recognition that if anything is to be done about the problems we face, Australia has to be active and engaged. You you might be, you are indeed uh, right that this gets harder when the great powers are refusing to engage. But the work he did uh, before the summit on terrorism and social media wasn't hugely controversial or difficult, but at least we were doing something. And the speech itself, I, I think, is a really interesting recognition that things are changing here and we've got to be working with others around, in some cases, the demands of the great powers. We may succeed, we may not succeed, but we've at least got to be in there doing. Indeed. And the work that you're referring to, Alan, was before the G20 summit. And
0: I believe we will have occasion to talk about that work on social media uh, with a special guest coming up in a future episode. So listeners, please hold on uh, for that. But wrapping up this segment, Alan, you did say at the outset that you would return to some squibbing.
1: What did you mean? Well, look, after, after talking the same much, as he did not so much in this speech, but we've seen it often, the need to avoid binary divisions. Uh, we mustn't think that uh, there's a binary division between our security and our prosperity, and so on. Uh, what we ended with here is in fact a binary division. <laughs> because he, yeah, I, I, I read it with increasing enthusiasm, and then got to the last page and discovered. Uh, on another occasion, I will address these issues from the perspective of our strategic security and defence industry mm-hmm. interests, rather. Well, that's a pretty important uh, proviso, <laughs> so uh, and it really does avoid our central dilemma. So there's obviously more to come here, and more for us to talk about on and this more podcast, for us to Alan. Talk about, yeah.
0: Moving on uh, to our second item on the agenda, which is the Lowy poll, uh, since. We last recorded the results of the latest Lowy Institute poll of the Australian public's thinking on foreign policy have been released. Before we get to the specifics, Alan, you were the founding executive director of the Lowy Institute, and you were responsible for creating the Lowy poll. Can you talk us through your thinking back then and your
1: reflections on how it has grown and evolved? Excellent question, Darren. (laughs) Uh, Look, one of the first things I did when uh, setting up the Lowy Institute was to ask Frank Lowy to spend some of his generous bequest on establishing an annual poll designed to find out just what Australians thought about foreign policy and international relations. Uh, I'd been frustrated throughout my career by reading pundits and commentators pronouncing on what Australians thought about various international issues, with for the most part, zero data mm. apart from their own uh, prejudices to back them up. Mm. Uh, I'd always had one thing particularly in mind. it's always fascinated me how Australia's views uh, of Japan have changed over over time. Um, You know, during my childhood, I can recall the very deep anger and hostility you could still see in my uh, parents' generation to Japan after the war. And now we're at a place where Australians feel more warmly about Japan than any other uh, Asian state. So when did that happen and why? Mm. And I just didn't think we, we had enough data to answer that. So I'm really pleased now that we have this 15 years of Uh, useful information through which we can track Australian views of the world. And the Lowy Institute has done a really great job, I think, of uh, putting it online and making it interactive. Uh, It's uh, really expensive for any organisation to undertake polling like this. And we've seen in our own election result just what some of the challenges of polling are. But I've I've talked people in Lowy responsible for the poll, and I know, I know that they're actively uh, engaged in in thinking about the mechanics of the polling as well as the results. So it's a uh, it's a great thing. I, I recall I think
0: it was a tweet from. From Alex Oliver, which said uh, something along along the lines of the Australian election showed us that all polls are wrong. But having said that, you should look at our (laughs) poll anyway. (laughs) Well, let's turn to the poll itself. Uh, Probably the first two results one should uh, turn their attention to, uh, and let me know if you disagree, Alan, um, are attitudes towards the United States and China. If we begin with the US, we saw healthy majorities, by which I mean over 70%, Agree that Aussies and Americans share common values and that Washington would come to our defense if we were under threat. Having said that, though, almost 70% also believe that our alliance makes it more likely we'll be drawn into a war in Asia that is not in our interests, and that was up 11% from 2015. And also that Donald Trump has weakened the United States. Though less than half of us, albeit a rising proportion, believe that the U.S. is in decline relative to China and the alliance is thus of decreasing importance. On China, I saw the results as surprisingly hawkish. Strong majorities see a strategic intent to dominate the region behind China's infrastructure projects. Do not trust China to act responsibly in the world. Believe we should do more to resist China's military activities despite the economic cost. Also, that we are too economically dependent anyway on China and allow too much Chinese investment in Australia. And moreover, finally, that we aren't doing enough to pressure China on human rights. There's a lot there, Alan. What jumped out at you from these big questions?
1: Yeah, look, uh, both of those were interesting. Uh, One of the most consistent features of the poll over 15 years has been the 75% or so of Australians who believe that the US alliance is important or very important to Australian security. That changes very little, uh, although we're seeing a decline at the moment in the percentage of those who say very important rather than important. But It's quite disconnected from our views about the United States itself or our attitudes to various uh, presidents. We sort of loved Barack Obama and didn't like George W. Bush. But confidence in Donald Trump uh, reaches new new levels, I think. When people are asked about their confidence in in, uh, uh, Trump to do the right thing regarding world affairs, they have less confidence in him than they do in Xi Jinping. Uh, on China, I wasn't surprised by the changing tone over the past couple of years. We've seen um, a lot going on in the Australia-China relationship. So the view that we saw for a long time, which, which was that China was opportunity uh, rather than threat, and we were unusual in that sort of similar polling in other Western countries uh, didn't, uh, didn't show that. But that's uh, begun to change now. Uh, I think it's probably an interesting example of the la- lag factor in, in public uh, opinion that it's, yep. taken, it's taken longer than I expected for this to come through. But the result is that measures of trust and warmth have plummeted and in particular the number of Australians who trust us, uh, China a great deal or somewhat fell by uh, 20% this year to 32%. Mm. And the degree of warmth is a sort of a thermometer which uh, measures the warmth we feel towards various countries. Mm. And that fell by nine degrees to 49 degrees. Uh, nearly three quarters of Australians think that the country is too economically dependent on China, as you said. Mm. The investment um, doesn't surprise me greatly. Australians hate investment. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, and that's been true no matter where it's come <laughs> from, from uh, Japan or wherever. But the dark view was reflected in, uh, in the further questions about what we should do about all of this. Um, 77% of the poll's respondents compared with 66% in 2015 uh, thought that Australia should do more to resist China's military actions in our region, even if this affects our economic relationship, as you said. And 70% consider Australia is not doing enough to pressure China to improve human rights. But on the other other side, and mirroring the disinclination of Australia's political leaders to make binary choices, 50% of respondents agreed that we should maintain strong relations with the United States, even if this meant harming our relations with China. But exactly the same people but at 44% agreed that building stronger relations with China was important even if this meant harming our relations with the US. So Australian politicians have probably got that balance about uh, right. (laughs) Well, let's uh, turn then to the final topic
0: for today, uh, which is a brief discussion of the G20. And as I said earlier, Uh, We fully expect to have a special guest on the podcast very soon and we'll be talking all things G20 then. Uh, But let's uh, discuss briefly the G20 Leaders Summit that was held in Osaka this past weekend. Alan, while I know where I want to end this discussion, I don't quite know where to begin um, on what (laughs) host Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, I imagine euphemistically called a frank dialogue. Uh, Let's go with the headline outcomes, uh, I suppose. First... The biggest headline grabber, of course, wasn't the G20 meeting itself, but Presidents Trump and Xi agreeing to restart talks in their trade war, pretty much the same outcome that we saw after the last G20 meeting in Buenos Aires in December. Second, 19 of the 20 members reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the odd one out, of course, being the Trump administration who one can only assume were solely responsible for paragraph 36 of the communique, which, and Alan, I'll ask you about this, seemed to me to be fairly unprecedented in the history of multilateral statements, with the first sentence reading, quote, The United States reiterates its decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement because it disadvantages American workers and taxpayers. And third, the other items on the agenda, directed towards the G20's overarching purpose to achieve strong, sustainable, balanced and inclusive growth, failed, I think, to gain much traction. My ANU colleague, Shiro Armstrong, wrote in the East Asia Forum that the summit, quote, may be remembered in history as the moment the global rules-based order was lost, end quote. So, Alan, where do you want to begin here?
1: Well, I think it was a pretty sad outcome all around. Japan had great opportunity, mm-hmm. but it failed to lead, you know, one assumes because the United States made it very difficult for it to do the mm-hmm. things that it wanted to do. Trump turned the summit into another episode of a reality TV show by deflecting attention from the things that matter to the Donald and Kim Jong un uh, show. This sort of, you know, bizarre event prefaced by a tweet from the plane or, or so really underlined the problems. And of course, you're referring to Trump's visit to the DMZ and, and then crossing into the border yeah, of North Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A completely purposeless event in my, in my, <laughs> from from my view. From our perspective, <laughs> yes. You know, but deflected utterly attention from the core objectives of the, the G20 mm-hmm. uh, summit. There was no real progress on the US-China uh, trade relations, as you, as you said, or on reform of the WTO. The dissent line about the Paris Agreement isn't unprecedented. You've, um, you've had standouts in international communiques before, okay. but it's no less depressing as another reminder of the incapacity of our current global leaders to address the most pressing problems in the world. So the end result of that is that no good news has come out of practice. And I wanted to ask you, Darren, does theory have anything consoling to say? <laughs> Maybe. I think you know, most would agree that the high point of the G20 was
0: its response to the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. But that was a very different world to today. To quote Meriden Varrell in The Lowy Interpreter, where she wrote, the shared sense of purpose and pursuit of the global good that motivated the formation of the G20 21 years ago has almost entirely dissipated, end quote. And I think that's right, but for a very specific reason, which I think can be framed theoretically, possibly with an optimistic tone. And this is to use, if you'll indulge me, listeners, uh, the language of game theory. Back in 2009 there was a consensus among the member states and their leaders about what the problem was and what needed to be done. The challenge was one of coordination, getting everyone to link up their policy responses towards this larger shared goal, with everyone recognising that a failure to coordinate would make everyone worse off. In game theoretic terms, this kind of situation is called a coordination game. Uh, and examples of this include the stag hunt and the battle of the sexes. In contrast, today there is no shared consensus about what needs to be done. Therefore, the problem is no longer one of coordination. It's about creating mechanisms that manage the problem of diverging interests. In game theoretic language, this is a collaboration problem, and the classic example is the prisoner's dilemma. Without going into details, the mechanisms for solving collaboration games like the Prisoner's Dilemma are very different to those that you use to solve coordination games. The G20 is well-suited to the latter, but not the former. And so I don't think it's the end of the world because we're in effect asking an institution to solve problems that it does not have the tools to solve necessarily. And these are really hard problems. In a less hierarchical world, where more states have the power to influence or stymie proceedings, progress on issues where there are genuine and deep conflicts of interest is going to be slow and frustrating. There are a range of potential pathways to solutions, as theory tells us anyway. For example, you can scale back the number of actors and look to build momentum for... You know, collaboration at the minilateral level, or even sometimes unilaterally, if you, if you look at what California, the state of California is doing with climate change. So I see the G20 outcomes not so much as a failure of the system, but a reflection of the challenges we face and the inability of these structures to, to solve those, the ones that we have. Daunting, yes, but maybe not the end of the world.
1: Well, not much consolation. (laughs) (laughs) I did my best. I'll I'll, I'll cling to it, but not much there. Well, if, (laughs) if, if,
0: if our listeners wanted to become even more depressed, my last question to you, Alan, is to observe that the host of next year's G20 summit is none other than Saudi Arabia. So what's your current assessment of the future of the organisation?
1: <laughs> well, bleak, bleak <laughs> in, uh, in one word. I mean, if, if Japan, which is the world's uh, third largest economy, couldn't get anything done, it's very hard to see the next three hosts, Saudi Arabia next year, as you say, and then Italy and uh, India doing very much mm.
0: more. Okay. Well, let's turn to our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. Um, No doing this week, I don't think. Alan, what have you been reading, listening and watching?
1: Uh, Look, I wanted to go back to the quote I had before from Robert Menzies on Great and Powerful Friends, and I'll remind you of it. Does anyone suppose we could, in our own strength, defend ourselves against major aggressor, he asked. Uh, Well, Hugh White does. And my reading this week is Hugh White's new book, uh, How to Defend Australia. Hughes written influentially before uh, about the implications for Australia of changing power relativities between the US and China Mm. in East Asia, and this is his account of what we should be doing about it and the implications for the Australian Defence Force. I can't count the number of uh, individuals and interest groups he will irritate or anger with this uh, <laughs> book, um, you know, wait for it. But the critical thing about Hugh's writing is that he won't let you look away. You uh, have to either agree with him or else work out carefully for yourself the reasons you don't. Mm. And uh, I think the book, uh, in addition to being a, a terrifically a good read, is a hard thinking of the sort. Australia badly needs now, whether you agree with all the conclusions or not. Fair
0: enough, fair enough. Uh, Well, I want to recommend a shorter piece of reading written by Arthur C. Brooks in The Atlantic, the title being Your Professional Decline is Coming Much Sooner Than You Think. In what could be seen as a very depressing read, I think Brooks offers a constructive way of thinking about how we can optimise our professional contributions at different stages of life. And in particular, he uses a distinction between fluid and crystallized intelligence. To summarize very briefly, you have lots of fluid intelligence when you're in your 20s and 30s that is useful for certain kinds of work focused on discovery and creativity and entrepreneurship. And then as you get older, you gain more and more crystallized intelligence. And there are many careers, uh, especially in teaching and advising and mentoring, where crystallized intelligence, what we think of as wisdom, is the defining input. And so I think it's a very thoughtful way of of thinking about what could be a
1: very depressing subject. Well, so long as it's crystallized and not calcified. (laughs) Well, that is all for
0: today's episode of Australia and the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Charlie Henshaw for his help with audio editing, Rory Standing for composing our theme music, and this week we're in studio at the Crawford School, so we thank Martin Pierce for his technical support. Talk to you again soon.